0: This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Pink House Foundation and listeners like you.
1: This is WMPG. My name is Anne Hallward, and I'm a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today, we continue our series on depression in the workplace. Depression is the number one cause of disability in the United States and the world, but I don't think most of us really know how to have useful conversations about it. That's what we're hoping to do today. With me is Susie Melnick, a psychotherapist who has struggled with depression herself and treats it in others. Susie initially worked as a classical musician and orchestra conductor, but 20 years ago she changed careers to become a psychotherapist. She now has a private practice in Nyack, New York. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Susie.
0: Thank you, Anne. It's really great to be here.
1: So depression is an illness that tends to recur in a person's life, uh, but I want to start at the beginning. When was the first time that you got depressed, what, and what was going on in your life at the time?
0: Well, I was in graduate school, although, t- to be honest, my father died when I was 10, and I went into a lot of grief, and I would probably, looking back on it, call it depression, but had no awareness of it as such. But I distinctly remember the first episode of what I would say was major depression. I was in graduate school, and I was supposed to conduct the premiere performance of West Side Story. I was in graduate school for conducting, and it was a big honor. The main faculty member who was supposed to conduct it had to be out of town to conduct something in Rome for the Pope, and that got snowed out, and he had to stay in town, and he called me and said, you don't have to do the performance. I get to do it. And I could just feel something snap. From that day on, I just walked around in a fog, in a complete sort of despair. Life is unfair. Uh, Couldn't concentrate. I developed a stomach ulcer. I couldn't sleep.
1: Yeah, so it really affected you. I mean, it's sort of a rare story in a way to hear that you can pinpoint the moment so clearly.
0: Yeah, I can hear his voice on the phone. And, you know, I had pushed so hard all my life, I think, to keep the grief at bay. And I had been a real hard worker. And all of a sudden, it was like, felt like somebody had pulled the rug out from under me.
1: Yeah, I mean, completely. Because w- here you were—I imagine you—so excited, so honored. It feels like this sort of break that you've been handed, right? And then for him to take it back in such an entitled way, like I get to do it—it it feels so insensitive. Yeah, um, yeah. To to you, this you know junior person who would of course have your heart set on it.
0: Right, right. And and you know, a good deal of ego as well. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: So you have this very painful thing that happens, and it sets off what we think of, what we call often the neurovegetative symptoms of depression. I mean, what you describe, Mm. you know, it's part of how we know it's a biological illness, not sleeping, developing a stomach ulcer, not being able to think, your mind in a fog. Um, Yes.
0: No motivation.
1: How long did it take for you to recognize this is actually depression? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I'm a pretty slow learner, um, you know. I it amuses me now because I, I'm I'm so geared to thinking that way. Obviously, as a therapist, but at the time I came from a family where feelings weren't really talked about. So, without being flippant, I kind of want to say it took me a good five to ten years to know that that was depression I just knew that I felt terrible and nothing felt the same anymore and I wanted to make it stop but I couldn't
1: so when you say it took you five to ten years did your (laughs) depression last that long
0: um I have mm, this is kind of difficult to say but I I had from that point on I was depressed more often than not for probably twenty five years a very long time
1: no kidding, Susie
0: yeah yeah that's it's it's not easy to say that
1: what makes it hard to say that
0: well, it's It's a lot of years of my life. Does it feel associated with shame for you? Well, I know that there is shame about it, but I think when I said that it's hard to say that, I think I was just reckoning with, that's a long time, 25 years. And, um, not to be melodramatic, but there was a lot of suffering in those 25 years. Yeah. Um, I think that's what makes it difficult. Yeah. So
1: it's more like really acknowledging the extent of the pain.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So as you
1: know, our, our focus today is is on how um, depression impacts us at work and, so many of the things you describe make sense that it would make it hard to work if your mind is in a fog, if you're in physical pain, if you're not sleeping and you're feeling so down. Um, Did the depression impact your ability to finish graduate school?
0: No. Um, I finished with flying colors. I think there are a couple of different responses to depression. Probably many more than a couple, but broad categories there are the people that really fall apart and just can't cope and then there are the highly functional depressed people that nobody would nobody looking at you would know that you were depressed and I fell into that category which in a way makes it even worse and on some level carries even more shame so so I finished grad school and I got a job as a conductor, but I was deeply hiding from everybody how bad I felt. It was all I could do to do what I had to do professionally, and I had almost not an ounce of energy left for anything else.
1: I don't really have any sense of what it's like to be a conductor, but um, how much energy does it take and how did the depression actually concretely affect you in that role
0: yeah it takes massive amounts of energy You first of all you need to um, really prepare so you need to study the uh, musical notation for the entire orchestra you need to know every note that everybody's playing and how you want them to play it and that takes just hours and hours of focus and concentration. So that's difficult when you don't have a lot of focus. Um, And then when you're rehearsing, you need to be, uh, to put it bluntly, you need to be charismatic. You need to make people want to play beautifully for you. And you need to be dynamic, and I was very good at faking it. Yeah, And that's what I did. But performing in front of an audience was actually the easy part because I didn't have to open my mouth and pretend to be charismatic or cheerful. It could just be between me and the musicians and the music. I think rehearsing was the hardest part. And I would have such trouble focusing, but somehow I kept managing to pull a rabbit out of a hat and say what needed to be said, but all the while thinking to myself, if they could have seen me two hours ago sobbing, or if they only knew that as I was doing this, I was so dissociated that I barely knew where I was, let alone what I was doing. Um, I don't know if that kind of conveys a flavor of it.
1: It does. I mean, it makes me picture a conductor. I, I hadn't ever quite thought of it that way. That It's so extroverted in a way. It's like all your energy is being put yeah. out toward other people. And for someone depressed, I can imagine that is just torturous.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've discovered since that I am essentially really a very major introvert. So it would have been a hard enough profession without the depression, but a depressed introvert <laughs> was not the right the right fit.
1: So how did what role did depression play in you deciding to switch careers?
0: A lot. I just couldn't really keep it up. I pushed and pushed and pushed. My my stomach problems got worse aches and pains, a lot of sort of doing something, but feeling like I was outside myself while doing it, that, you know, depersonalization and, and that can make you feel like you're losing it, like really going crazy. And I kept it up until I had my first, uh, child, my, my oldest son. And, um, I got I hit the point in my career where it was either go on the road and commute back and forth between two minor cities and audition for this and that you know just where the career is about to blossom and everything in me just said I can't do this anymore I just can't do it but I I had started therapy back after the first episode of depression that I described in grad school and I was really getting a lot out of the therapy and the relationship and so an idea began to form that maybe I could do this instead
1: Uh uh-huh so because therapy had been so useful to you on on the receiving end yeah there was a feeling like huh this is sort of something I might do
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I think that's true for so many therapists. Yes. And it it also felt like the antithesis of standing on the podium conducting, you know, 60 or 80 people. just, Just me in a room with one person. Susie, you
1: mentioned that you spent that time as a conductor hiding the depression. Yes. What made you feel like you had to hide it?
0: Ah, don't most people feel that way with depression? There's such a stigma. The expectations for a conductor are great to, uh, as I said, to be charismatic, to be dynamic, um, particularly as a woman conductor. And we're talking about in the 80s and 90s, and the climate was quite a bit different than for a woman conductor. There weren't very many of us. And there was a lot of pressure to act like a man. And typically, men aren't supposed to have feelings. I mean, I was literally told by a woman conductor to to uh, tie my hair back because I looked too feminine.
1: I think for so many women, when we are going into sort of traditionally male professions, There is such a pressure to not, uh, not do anything that draws attention to your femaleness, lest they think you're not good enough for the job. I mean, it's yeah. I, I can imagine that contributed to you pushing yourself so hard. And the last thing you'd want to be is this like emotional female who might be viewed as weak.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know, every conducting teacher I had. Well, my first conducting teacher actually was a woman, but all the rest were men and, you know, a few of them were European men and they were very old school. You know, this is the way you do it and you can't show any feelings and, yeah.
1: So you ultimately decide to become a therapist, you go back to graduate school to to train to become a therapist. You're now in a totally different profession than being a conductor, but... I can imagine that nonetheless, depression can make being a therapist very difficult. And I'm yes. curious to ask how did depression show up for you in your work as a therapist?
0: In a number of ways. I mean, for one thing, sometimes I just couldn't make it into work. And having been in therapy, I know how damaging it can be and what a what a rupture it can be when a therapist is sick or cancels at the last minute. So I really hated to have to do that. And yet there were some days when I was so depressed that I could not imagine sitting opposite someone and, um, I I couldn't imagine getting off the sofa and staring at the rug. So I would cancel. And sometimes I would do it at the spur of the moment because uh, I, I still have certain parts that like to push. And I would like, I can do this, I can do this. And then all of a sudden, no, I can't do this.
1: And what would you tell your client was the reason for the cancellation?
0: I would make up a physical issue or occasionally uh, when my kids were little i i might if it was a client that knew i had children you know blame it on a sick child um or i would have uh quote migraine or quote stomach flu uh but that was really difficult for me to do i i i still feel some shame about it i still feel some guilt about it yet i also forgive myself. I, I know that when I canceled, which wasn't terribly often, I really had no choice. Um,
1: it feels yeah. like in a way that's sort of part of the cost of the stigma of mental illness is that it doesn't feel like a legitimate thing to say. It,
0: no, I mean, and especially when you're a therapist, although, you know, I have many times run the scenario. And interestingly, since I I wouldn't say that I was depressed and and I would say I've I've been out of the woods for a good many years now but now I'm honest with clients who are suffering from depression and I might say something like you know I'm not unfamiliar with this territory and I've been in places like this myself and it that feels really good to them as well as to me, to be able to be honest about it. But when it's happening, it's a different story. Right. And you asked about other ways that it impacted me. It was very difficult. I would say the hardest part was being with clients themselves that had very low affect, very little, you know, visible emotion um, because that's so much what depression feels like. And I had good um, parts that were very good at pretending that wasn't so for me and could be very animated and not seem depressed even when I was. But when I was confronted with someone with that sort of mask of depression which I myself might have had you know hours before at home and was anticipating having when I got home it was just so difficult to sit with somebody who couldn't seem to pull themselves out of it
1: I can so imagine that because so many so much feeling in a room is contagious so there you are trying to you know resonate with how they're feeling and that I can imagine was very difficult
0: Right. Right. And why and having parts of myself saying, well, why aren't you faking it (laughs) to them? Not literally, (laughs) you know, but inwardly.
1: Right. So, you know, you say that you said, uh, you know, I often had to pretend not to be depressed. How do you do that?
0: Oh, God, I wish I knew I'd bottle it. Um, (laughs) How do you do that? Well, you you zip something up inside You tighten your stomach. You probably laugh more than you should. It's kind of excruciating, but yet I got so good at it that I was often really grateful to be at work where I could pretend not to be depressed and for a while even convince myself.
1: Would it exhaust you afterward?
0: Oh, absolutely. I would come home and, and thank God I, I had and still have the same supportive husband, um, and you know, usually I would come home and dinner would be ready, and you know, often, you know, the kids would have had their baths or whatever. Um, it was very, very exhausting.
1: You no, know, I think about being a mom and being a parent is actually a form of work as well. Very
0: much so, yeah.
1: Did being depressed make it harder for you to be really available to your kids?
0: I think it did in in probably a lot of ways. You know, some of the the spontaneous moments of play and storytelling um my kids would ask me to tell them stories or would want to engage in the kind of play where you know this little lego guy says this and the other little lego guy says that and i was i felt really like the depression made me very bad at that because the thing about depression is your brain is almost on a constant stutter, and you the thoughts just keep circling and circling and around and around, and the words don't come out. And, you know, I remember agonizing moments of, I'm supposed to come up with a creative story, and I can't think straight.
1: Um, yeah, that makes sense. I remember being asked for what felt like my 10,000th story. <laughs> yeah. And, uh <laughs> yes, and it's so challenging without depression to keep coming up with creative new ideas. And Yeah. Yeah, with depression, that would be so hard.
0: Yeah, and so much pressure with the kids because they, they want their stories, and it's a way of connecting. And when I couldn't come up with it, I I really, you know, my, my inner critic just kept getting louder and louder, which of course made the brain not work so well.
1: Well, I think too that such a universal experience, especially for moms, is a feeling of guilt. Like if you do anything that might have hurt your child, you know. Christ. Right. And, and, and of course, guilt is a hallmark of depression itself. Yes. And so I can imagine that that could just be this horrible, vicious cycle of self criticism when you were already yeah. down.
0: Because we're we're taught, you know, mind over matter, which also includes mind over mind, yeah. you know, <laughs> Especially we, sh- that. we should be able to talk ourselves out of this.
1: Yes. So Susie, I want to ask one last question in closing, which is um, you have this window into what it is to suffer with depression. Yeah. How do you feel that that insider knowledge helps you help other people when they're depressed? What has it given you? A kind of perspective on it that you feel Able to share with others
0: Mm, Yes Yes absolutely Um, Over the years In working with my My own depression I've come to such a place of Gentleness with myself In fact I would say that was one of the Things that got me Out of it was to Stop beating myself Up about it and to to start sort of loving the depressed parts. And so I offer that to my clients both explicitly and implicitly. I, I feel it for them and they can feel that coming from me and I offer it as a possibility to them to bring some kindness to themselves. Because we beat ourselves up so badly with depression,
1: and so I can I can understand bringing loving kindness to the parts of you that are suffering with depression. How do you work with the inner critic that's telling you you're worthless? How does that part of it work?
0: Well, as you know, I practice internal family systems, which is working with parts of uh, people's internal voices and. Um, I help people find the ways that the internal critic is actually trying to be nice to them. Even though it may be screaming in their ear, you know, what a horrible being they are, there's always a positive intention. It may be to whip them into a froth of self-improvement, that's often a, a motivator. So gradually, when you can help somebody to listen to their own inner critic, you find that it, it's it's usually depressed as well. Right. that's You know, most people can usually find. um some kindness towards someone else with a depression, even if they can't find it towards themselves. And when they begin to get that their own inner critic is depressed, then they can find some kindness for it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if sense. that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, I, it does. I think the inner critic is so often very earnest and sincerely trying to help the person. I often liken the inner critic to like a a basketball coach running up and down the court screaming with a purple face and like that the, the inner critic often believes they're getting the best game out of the athlete right. by just right. that's a, that's attacking a great, them.
0: <laughs> that's a great image, yeah. And so I'm not afraid of my inner critic anymore, and I hope, I think, that that somehow is, is conveyed, as I said, you know, both explicitly and implicitly.
1: Susie, I want to thank you so much for your willingness to talk about this subject, which is still so hidden in our culture. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you just to close. Are there any resources that you want to just name for someone who might want to follow up and do a little research and things you've talked about?
0: Well, I would suggest Rubinfeld Synergy or any other you know body psychotherapy, somatic experiencing there there are a number of them um, I think that has been incredibly helpful and I would also suggest um, beginning some sort of uh, meditation practice there are a number of um mindfulness-based stress reduction programs around and anybody could google them and find a, a very gentle and accessible to anyone program for both tuning into your body and beginning to separate out from the depression so you begin to not completely identify with it.
1: I have a wonderful resource that I want to share about my mindfulness training um, in something called mindfulness-based stress reduction, what you were saying, Susie. Yeah. The website is palousemindfulness.com, and Palouse is P-A-L-O-U-S-E, mindfulness.com, and it's an entire class in meditation with videos and all kinds of free resources, and I really can't recommend it highly enough.
0: I I think that's wonderful. I, I didn't know about that site, and um, I'm definitely going to recommend it to people myself.
1: Susie Malnick, thank you again so much.
0: Thank you, Anne. It's really been a pleasure.
1: If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio, or you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com where you can listen to all of our past shows. We've done a number on living with mental illnesses of all different kinds. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And please leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.